0: This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast, the podcast where you get a bite-sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor. I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, and I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and into the world. Are you ready? Let's go. Hello, writers and wordsmiths, storytellers and scribes. I know I said I was taking the summer off from podcasting to work on my novel, and I am. I promise I am. But I also promised you some bonus content to keep you motivated and inspired during my offseason. So I am going to be re-releasing some of my favorite author interviews that I've done over the past few years. First up, it's a 2020 interview with the incredible novelist and literary activist Lauren Francis Sharma. Now, just so you know, I was doing these interviews on my other podcast that was called My American Melting Pot, which has been laid to rest. Rest in peace, My American Melting Pot. But you will hear me welcoming Lauren to the show as My American Melting Pot, just so you're aware. Now, back to Lauren. So who is Lauren Francis Sharma? Lauren is a child of Trinidadian immigrants, and she has written about the Caribbean in both of her best-selling novels, Till the Well Runs Dry, her first book, and Book of the Little Axe which is the book we talk about in this episode. Lauren's also written for The Lily, Electric Literature, Barrel House, Salon, as well as Marita Golden's anthology, Us Against Alzheimer's, Stories of Family, Love, and Faith. Lauren holds a degree in English literature with a minor in African-American studies from the University of Pennsylvania and a JD from the University of Michigan Law School. Lauren is the assistant director of Breadloaf Writers Conference at Middlebury College and she is a book reviewer for the San Francisco Chronicle. During our interview, Lauren talks about how she went from being a lawyer to being a novelist and what Stephen King, yes, that Stephen King, had to do with that transformation. She also shares the backstory and her writing journey working on the incredible Book of the Little Acts, which had just come out a couple of months before our interview. Book of the Little Axe is seriously one of the most powerful novels I have ever read. And I highly encourage you to read it. And again, listening to Lauren's story of writing such a dense historical novel is really instructive. Now, because this episode was recorded in 2020, Lauren also shares what it was like having a book come out right in the beginning of the pandemic. Spoiler alert, it was no bueno. This is really an inspiring and enlightening episode that I'm sure will leave you in awe of Lauren and her creative writing career, and you'll definitely be able to pull some writing tips and ideas out of the conversation as well. So without further ado, enjoy the interview. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Lauren Francis Sharma. It's so good to have you here.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So, Lauren, I have to uh, start out by saying and saying this to you and to all of the listeners that when I finished reading Book of the Little Acts, I was completely gutted. I had to cry. I had to lay back down. This story hit me in so many different places, and I'm still processing it all. I mean, it was such a powerful novel. So I I have to just put that out right at the beginning. But Before we dive into how powerful that book was and the story behind it, I want our listeners to get to know you a little bit better as a woman and as a writer, as a mother. So can we just start with you telling a little bit about your background, like where you were born, where you grew up, and because this is my American melting pot, a little bit about your Trinidadian heritage as well. So I
1: grew up in Baltimore, uh, born in New York to two Trinidadian parents both of whom came here as young adults. My grandmother came in the late 1960s and is the sort of uh, inspiration behind my first novel, *To the Well Wrenched Dry. I went to the University of Pennsylvania for undergrad, studied English lit and a minor in African American studies. Then I went on to law school at the University of Michigan. I practiced law, corporate law for 10 years. Until I decided to stay home with my second child for just a couple of years, I said, uh, until I decided to try my hand at what would have been my third attempt at writing a novel which turned into my first book to The Wallman's Drive, which you know obviously got published and uh, and at that point decided to give this writing thing a little more of a try.
0: Well, I'm so glad you did. (laughs) I'm so glad you did that. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that transition from being a corporate lawyer to being a writer? I know that oftentimes people say that, you know, I decided to become a writer. I started writing a novel. Like, Tell me a little bit more about what that looked like. And I have to admit that I did see a video where you spoke about being dissatisfied being a lawyer Mm -hmm. and Stephen King showed up somehow in this morning. <laughs> I was going to mention it, but I it was, you know, some people have seen that video,
1: so I didn't know if I should mention it, but I will. But yeah, I worked for a big law firm in New York City, and uh, when I got there, I sort of knew I'd made a mistake, but I was all in, right? I mean, I'd graduated from law school, and I'd gotten the dream job, and I had to sort of stick it out. But I'd always really enjoyed reading and writing about my reading. So I loved being an English lit major. It was probably one of the most joyful times of my academic career. But when you go to law school, you know, there isn't a lot of time for pleasure reading. And I, I sort of put all those things that I really loved and enjoyed aside. And then I was working on a deal and I I'd been working night after night on this closing this deal and um, the client was there from England and he he was ready for the for the deal to close on Monday morning and the senior associate who I was working with had decided to stay home on Sunday the night before the deal was to close because the Giants were playing in the uh, <laughs> in the playoffs and he wanted to have a big party so he told the client, well, you know, Lauren's going to handle it. She'll manage everything. in the. Uh, and the client was sort of, you're leaving me with the coat check, girl, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so it was pretty shocking. And I walked out of the conference room and I left the building, went down to Barnes & Noble, which at the time was on Third Avenue, and, uh, and had a little cry up in the stacks. And um, when I came down, I ran into Stephen King. <laughs> (laughs) in
0: the lobby. (laughs) Can you just elaborate on that for a second? Was he just browsing or was he there for an event?
1: He must have been there for an event but I didn't know because I must have come in after the event was over so there was like a restaurant called Houston's in the basement of the Barnes & Noble and so people used to just sort of mill around in the lobby waiting for like their table to be ready but upstairs was the Barnes & Noble so he was sort of standing in the place where people usually wait to get their tables for Houston's and you know I was a big fan. I am a big fan of Stephen King. He was the one author that I actually read during my summer. Like if I took a vacation while I was practicing or studying for law, he'd be like the one, you know, sort of, I'm gonna give myself the Stephen King novel on the beach. So I went up to him and, you know, he looked like he might have been waiting for his car to arrive. But I went up to him and I was like, <laughs> Oh, I love you, you know. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have, like, I had no words, I was just so stunned. And uh, he kind of looked at me and he shook his head. And I always say I had to be like the first black woman to like declare their love for him, I'm sure he was really stunned by it. But afterward, you know, I was walking back to, um, to the building and uh, you know, I had to go back to work. And I thought to myself, well, you know what, I'm not gonna let this job, this career take me. that I really enjoy the most, which is, you know, reading and writing. I'm going to go back to doing that. And so that night I decided to start writing a book and I, you know, I just sat down and I I wrote and it was really just a pleasure. It was more just sort of a, a release of tension for me. And I finished, you know, a couple of years later and decided to try to sell it and it didn't sell. And then I was like, I'm going to try again. And I did and it didn't sell. And then I was like, okay, I'm done i you know, I really need to focus on this law thing. Can't, you know, this, this is a pipe dream. And I didn't write for 10 years. And I remember it felt like a, a leaking faucet, you know, where you just have this thing that's happening behind you and it's really annoying and it's persistent. Um, and it was like an ache almost. And so when my grandmother got sick and I went up to Brooklyn to see her at the hospital, That's when I decided to give it another try and write another book. And this time she was going to sort of be the star of that book. And that ended up being published. But many, many years later. So (laughs) sort of a long dream fulfilled.
0: But that's so amazing. And I mean, I love that story. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for sharing the part where the two books that you first wrote didn't get published. Why do you think that the book about your grandmother, which is for anyone who didn't catch that, it's Till the Well Runs Dry, Lauren's first book that when published was published to great critical acclaim, some awards to, I mean, that book was a blockbuster, if you will, when you think about debut novels. Do you think it's because you had practice with those other two books? Do you think it was the subject? What do you think was different about because it's not like you were writing furiously for 10 years, right? Yeah. You said you stopped writing. Yeah. What do you think it was about, Till the Well Once Dried, writing about your grandmother that made the difference?
1: You know, it's probably a combination of things, but I certainly took a, um, the story is about an ordinary woman, an ordinary girl, young girl in Trinidad, who sort of doesn't live a particularly extraordinary life from beginning to end, but she is remarkable in other ways. She's strong and falls in love with a guy who probably isn't the right guy to fall in love with and she you know she's just she's just grinding and making it work and i i think the the whole idea of sort of bringing to light sort of this everyday west indian woman who comes to america works as a domestic you know leaves her kids behind like the story is so it's, it has been told many times over in the Caribbean community, but hadn't actually been, well, I shouldn't say that because Jamaica Kincaid writes a little bit about this, but hadn't been told in quite that way. Trinidad hadn't been seen in quite that way. So I think there are a lot of sort of unique points with that. But for me, the difference was that I decided when I started writing that book, I decided I was not going to hide myself in a room that I was actually going to, to write in a community. And so I found other writers, um, other people who wanted to be writers, and I began to meet with them sort of every week. And we just trade chapters and working with other people and sort of learning how they were reading my work, how they were perceiving it, how to read other people's work just by doing it was really important. And I think, and they, they also helped me be brave at the end when, you know, they said, I think it's time, and I was like, "No, but I failed already." And they like, no, "No, no, no, no." We think it's time, and so um, I, they really helped me quite a bit. And I, you know, I think that's a big. And I don't know if I want to call it a mistake, but you know, for a lot of writers, um, it's really, really hard to show your work. And so, showing my work was a big, big step for me. But it was certainly helpful to get other people's read on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that is, you know, the idea that writing is so solitary; it's a solitary pursuit. And yet we write for the public, right? So there's that balance of, you know, protecting what's precious, but also getting feedback. And I didn't start doing any kind of workshopping or creative writing until I was like in my 40s (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then was like, why have I waited this long? You know, like this is really powerful and it's so helpful. And it's so, and it's also, you know, building that community of writers is so powerful too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So one of the things you just mentioned, and one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit more before we speak specifically about Book of the Little Axe is Trinidad. So Till the Well Runs Dry and Book of the Little Axe both feature Trinidad prominently, right? You could even say that Trinidad is kind of one of the characters in these stories. Can you talk a little bit about why Trinidad is so ripe for storytelling? And I say that as a person who is fascinated by Trinidad. But like you just mentioned, I don't really know that much about Trinidad. And I think a lot of people, you know, I'm saying a lot of people, many Americans, you know, we have our ideas about the Caribbean, right? And certain islands we know more about for better or worse, right? But Trinidad, for me personally and I don't even know like what was my first kind of introduction to the island, but I know that it had, like I've known in the back of my mind that it had kind of a multicultural population and that it had the footprint of different European colonizers on it. I know that from the food, I know that from the people who I've met who have names that sound rather Spanish. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite authors is Elizabeth Nunez. Mine too. Yeah. And <laughs> and I actually had the pleasure of um, being in one of her fiction workshops. Mm. And I made the mistake of calling her Elizabeth Nunez. And she corrected me. She said, we do not have an Enya on our name. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just, there's so much history in this island. And so as a, what i like to call myself a diversity diva like multicultural populations fascinate me so what do you as a writer and as a person who claims trinidad as your kind of ancestral home if you will what do you think it is about trinidad that is so inspiring for you personally as a writer but also you know kind of more in the in people's minds as this very multicultural and diverse place
1: yeah um
0: i love elizabeth too and and that's exactly what she would have said <laughs> yeah
1: I love her so much. I, me too. Me too. She's uh, she's been such a remarkable help for me over the years. But yeah, you know, so first of all, I grew up here. I was born in the States and so my sense of Trinidad was sort of visits to family and obviously growing up in a house with two Trinidadians and so but it certainly didn't feel like a comfortable homey place for me. I was always, you know, I was the Yankee with my cousins. You know, they always, <laughs> they wanted me to speak, you know, so they could hear my accent. Um, so I was always sort of on weird display when I was down there. But I think as I got older, I started to realize um, how little I knew and how I wanted to know more. And so then my visits became much more As opposed to sort of, oh, we're going to go there again, it became much more like, wait a minute, this place is kind of interesting. And my curiosity grew more. And, you know, writing the book, the first book, So the Wild Wings Dry was really um, eye-opening for me. Not only for me, because I, I was exploring parts of the country in a different way, but also just doing a little bit of the research and the history behind Trinidad. And, you know, I brought in, in that book, I brought in a lot of uh, diverse characters. So, you know, as you mentioned, there are people with Spanish-sounding names and French-sounding names, and there's a prominent East Indian character and a prominent Chinese character and on and on. And all of that seemed pretty normal for me in terms of, like, what I experienced being in Trinidad and also hearing my parents' stories. But when I began sort of marketing the book. I people were really surprised and they they really had no um no idea about how multicultural I mean I consider Trinidad to be the real melting pot, to be honest with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would not fight you on that at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And um and so When I decided to write Book of the Little Axe, you know, sort of when it came along, I knew I was going to try to fill in those gaps that I found my readers had, you know, reading Till the Wall Runs Dry. So I went back a little bit and um, sort of talked about the indigenous tribes and the hundreds of year war that they had with the Spanish and and then the Spanish being overpowered by the British. I don't go all the way up to, you know, the indentured servitude of East Indians and Chinese, but I do talk about sort of, you know, the beginnings of slavery on the island and how it differed from other islands. Um, And I think that played a huge role in why the island is so much more diverse than many of the other islands in, in the Caribbean. And then in terms of biodiversity, it's a really lush land as well. It's just beautiful, right? And it's mountainous and places and the coastlines are really beautiful. The birds and the trees and all that just make for an incredibly um, a high sensory experience reading and also being there. So um, it's sort of ripe. And, and it is the kind of writing that I love the most I'm very, very descriptive about things and food and places. And, and, um, and I really try to make an immersive experience for a reader. So Trinidad just is, is so ripe for that for me.
0: That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I, you know, you say it's ripe. I feel like that's the perfect word because it's like full of, like, full to bursting with stories of all these different people who have been on that island and also like the lushness of the actual location feels ripe as well. Like how could you not want to put a story there, put a character there, right? That's
1: how I feel. Uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's dive into Book of the Little Acts now. And I'm I'm putting it out there that I don't want to get too deep into specifics because I know I don't want to give anything away because not like it's a mystery or anything, but there are certain parts of it that, you know, it's the unraveling that makes it so good. So I'm not going to ask deeply specific questions. I know that most of my book club readers are we're meeting to talk about the book next week actually the day after this comes out so, so many of them are like, I'm, I'm not done yet. <laughs> like, it's okay. It's okay. But I don't want to get into too many specifics to, you know, for any spoilers. But the first question that I wanted to ask you, though, about the book is the same question that one of my book club members also wanted to ask was simply, how did you come up with this story idea? <laughs> I mean, the reason I selected Book of the Little Axe for our summer book club pick is is because it was this commingling or clashing of cultures of a Trinidadian woman and a Native American in this particular time period in America where I had never seen this connection of culture before. And I don't care what the book was actually going to be, just that premise made me say, we have to read this book. So, where does that come? from? Was it a dream like what was it a footnote in history that you were like, maybe I'm just so fascinated is where the nugget of this story came from?
1: Yeah, me too <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um so it's a lot of
1: things, and you know, and this is the the sort of beautiful part about writing, but you know the initial thought came up when I was listening to <laughs> Willie Nelson on fresh air and um <laughs> I was driving to pick up my kids from school and, um, and I was listening to him in this interview. It had been recorded many years earlier, um, but he was winning this prize. And so, you know, they they often will replay old interviews and he was strumming his guitar and singing. And I was sort of thinking about um, as I was listening to him sing, I was sort of thinking about my parents and watching westerns with them and you know and Little House on the Prairie and you know just sort of all the things that like Willie Nelson brings up <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and you know, because my parents are West Indian and older West Indians, um, they listen to country Western music. So it wasn't like it was unusual for me to hear Willie or to hear Dolly or, you know, or Kenny. And so I felt perfectly at home listening to him. And then this idea sort of popped up and I saw this girl and I saw her house and I was thinking to myself, huh, that's interesting, but I have no time for that. Um, so I get the I get the kids in the car, and I'm really not thinking about this story at all, even though I know it's sort of in the back of my mind. But as I was doing the dishes, it started to creep up again, and I was like, what's happening here? Because I was in the middle of writing a completely different book, and I hadn't actually planned on abandoning it. But the, the story just felt really persistent. So I said, you know, let's just do a little research. So I went into my library and I pulled down Eric Williams. Dr. Eric Williams was the first prime minister of Trinidad. And he was also like an Oxford scholar. And he wrote a number of books about sort of the history of Trinidad and a lot of books just about the Caribbean in general. And he... In his books, I realized, oh, wait, this is really fascinating. Like, there really could be this family in this house that I had imagined living as free people during this time. And I didn't quite know what this time meant, but as I looked, I was like, huh, that's interesting. But then I was like, well, what am I writing about? Am I just writing about them and when the British arrive and like what happened? So I started just. Thinking to myself, and I did a little bit more research about that time period, but this time I was sort of looking in the United States, you know, what was happening during that time here and in different places, and somehow, and I just, I really don't remember how this happened, but somehow I landed upon a character named Edward Rose. And Edward Rose was a Native American, a black man who was also Native American. And he was a, in the Crow tribe and he was sort of a chief, but he was also a guide for many explorers, um, European explorers who were coming to make their way west sort of around the time of Mary Ellen Lewis and William Clark. And so when I found Edward, And I started to read more about him. I actually ordered a book that I think that the historian's name is Harold Felton, wrote a book about Edward Rose. And I ordered it from like eBay or something. And I started reading about this man. And I was like, "Okay, this is interesting. I was like,
0: "Hmm." Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I have to pause you for one second. Yeah. Edward Rose was real.
1: He's a real life character.
0: Oh, my goodness. I did not know that. Okay, (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm like listening and I'm hearing you. But I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You're saying you found him. You didn't find him in your mind. You no, found, I found him in him. reality.
1: I found him, yes. And when I found him, I sort of knew then that one of my characters was going to make her way to what would become America and what would become Montana and she would meet him there. But I didn't quite know what was going to happen. I just knew that that was the sort of story arc, the trajectory of her life. And so... Again, I was sort of thinking to myself, this is crazy. (laughs) Like, I don't even understand what this story is about. I'm not sure how this could happen. But as I began to research, I realized that there were all these people sort of, you know, it was a time of great exploration, right? We're talking late 1700s, early 1800s. People, even though it was challenging, people are moving. So there are people moving from East and West and North and South. And just, you know, there's all this sort of, discovery and warring and multilingualism. um, There's a lot happening in the world. And I just thought to myself, well, you know, we've got all these white men that I know are moving, but I I also know that if they're moving, other people have to be moving as well. And, you know, and I started to find more things to support this idea that this kind of travel could and was taking place. And so the story obviously goes from Trinidad to what will become Montana to what will become Idaho and some parts in between <laughs> for one character in particular. So it just, it all felt factually possible. And I was like, well, why not?
0: Well, I'm so glad that was your response was why not? What you said was so, you know, it's it's kind of the reason that I write and I have this podcast and I have my blog because, you know, I'm such a firm believer that, particularly the United States, that our stories are so much more multicultural than what has been written. Like you said, it's been written about white people crossing the country and their explorations. But it doesn't mean that people of color of all different colors weren't doing the same thing. It just means that nobody wrote it down or that was suppressed. And here we have this epic story that you've told us. And, you know, I feel like I've been reading since I was, you know, I don't know, four or five years old. I was such a voracious reader and I was always looking for myself and the characters and didn't find them until like yesterday. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, You know, I read Little House on the Prairie. I read all these explorers stories. Right. And couldn't ever find one where I was featured. And I think there's a common saying that black people could never be in a time traveling movie or show or anything because we would just be slaves, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Like there's nothing good for black people in the past. And not that this story is like happy ending kind of thing, but there's a full story. There's full lives. There's exploration. There's discovery. There's farming. There's so much, the same things that's happening for anybody else. Right. So I just appreciated this story for that. Like I love learning that there were people who, quote unquote, looked like me, who were participating in these time periods that we know of, of great exploration and discovery and travel and meeting people from other lands and and mingling and, you know, making new cultures. Mm -hmm. It's for that reason alone, I think this book is just so powerful. And knowing that some of these characters were actually real or based on real people, like you said, that it was factually possible. This wasn't a full invention of Lauren, like, sitting up at night saying, hey, what if I tried this?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, That's the highest compliment. And you made me feel kind of tingly inside because, you know, I too felt that way as a young person, you know, reading those books and and watching those shows and just – You know, I loved them and I enjoyed them so much. But when I finished writing this book, I was like, oh, I gave myself, that little girl, this gift. You know, I I felt like I sort of checked the box for her. Like, oh, see, you could have been in those stories too. Here's one for you. And what you say is so true, right? I remember when I was reading um, Dr. Williams' books and there's this one called Documents of the West Indies, I think. And it's just sort of a collection of letters written by um, European colonists back home and, you know, sort of census information about, you know, various islands. And so Dr. Williams is sort of collecting this information. And as I was reading it, I remember thinking to myself, well, geez, you know, all these census materials say that there are free people of color, there are enslaved Africans, there are indigenous people on the islands. I mean, you have all these people here and the only people whose letters and stories have been kept are the white men who are writing. And there's something about that that just drove me crazy because I know these people had stories too. And like you said, full lives, you know, mothers and fathers and siblings and land that they worked and all of that I wanted to bring into the story and to show these very full, creative, multicultural experiences. And, um, and, you know, anyway.
0: Well, you did such a good job. And that was my, my next question was just the extent of the research, like, I think I saw or heard a radio interview you did and I you know, listened to a lot of different things. So please correct me if I'm misstating something, but this was a combination of an interview, but I also maybe just assumed that the research for the Trinidadian history might've been a little bit more, a little easier for you because this was something you had researched before you'd written about before. And obviously your family is from there, mm-hmm. but how was the research for the Crow and other native tribes, and just the experience of what it was like being a, not an explorer, but a, a roving guide, whatever these other characters were. How did you do that research? How hard was that? Because again, the, I mean, it wasn't like the book fell off anytime you spoke about the other characters in this story that were in the not yet United States, these territories. How did you do that? And where did you
1: even start? Well, the first book was um, was when I found Edward Rose, I was sort of like, okay, so now I have a tribe. And so then I began sort of looking for all the information I could find on the Crow tribe, which I don't refer to them as the Crow tribe in the book, really. I go by their own given names. and I And I do that with all the tribes that I mention in the book, because at that time, that's what they would have been known as to themselves and otherwise. So there's a lot of information out there if you just sort of <laughs> you just sort of want to find it and i at first knew that i wasn't like despite whatever books I could get and whatever research material I would be able to get on the internet or even by traveling there, which I did. I also knew I had to have someone holding my hand because I didn't want to show my blind spots. Um, And we all have blind spots. And this is not a community that I grew up in that I'm a part of. And so I knew that there were going to be things that even if I read them could land poorly. And so my entire goal was to make sure that if I was speaking about this other community of people, that I did so respectfully and treated their culture with great honor in the way that I I want people to talk about Black characters when they're writing, right? And so I looked... I did a search on, um, I believe it was either Twitter or Facebook, and I just sort of asked people that I knew if they knew anyone from the Crow tribe who might be willing to sort of talk to me a little bit. And I, I ended up finding a wonderful, wonderful man who is a writer and also a member of the tribe who just held my hand and sort of walked me through what life would have been like, what he'd been told life would have been like for a 12 year old boy at this time, what he could do, what he couldn't do, how he might've responded and reacted to certain things. And, you know, I, I mean, I wrote this character, Victor is the son of our heroine, and I wrote him in a way that honors both the community that he's been brought up in, but also understanding that his mother is different. She's Black. She's Trinidadian and she was not raised here. So he is a, he's a hybrid of those two communities. And and I really tried to both show him as a crow boy, but also as this, you know, child of Rosa Rendon. And so Scott was very helpful. This man was very helpful for that. But I, you know, I ended up going to Montana and Little Bighorn College. Is there, and there's some wonderful Tim McCleary, is you know, is sort of the resident expert there and sort of available (laughs) by text if you have any questions. So, poor Tim, I had lots of questions for him, and so, um. So I really used whatever resources I could. I stayed there. I, when I was there, I actually had a wonderful Crow couple who took me onto the reservation and helped me find the exact spots where I needed to write the scenes. And so I told them, you know, I needed this river and I needed it to be like this. And, you know, and they would sort of take me there and suggest where this might have happened according to what they knew about where camps had been set up or, you know, in the hundreds of years of, you know, many thousands of years of that land being theirs. And so, so, you know, lots and lots of little, little pieces that sort of came together. And the goal obviously is not to show all the research when you're writing, but to do the research so that the reader is fully immersed and really, really feels feels like they are there.
0: It's so wonderful. I mean, and it shows so much. It does, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Sometimes I read like a writer and sometimes I read like a reader. And because I'm working on a novel right now, I swore I was going to read every novel right now as a writer, you know, just picking up structure and dialogue and all these things. And I couldn't because I just fell so fully 100% into this story. I couldn't see you at all. I couldn't see the writer. I could only be in the story. So, and I, what I could kept thinking though was like, how in the world did she get this many details, like it's, and you know, the different characters, voices, it's truly, truly incredible piece of literature. So how long were you actually doing the research for this book? Like, I mean, I know there might be overlap of writing and researching, but what would you say from start to finish, you know, when you got that Kenny Rogers interview till the book manuscript was done?
1: I tend to sort of research in between. I also, let me just say this, what I did do is I have a, You know, when you have kids, you have a sort of a, a new community when your kids start to grow up that, you know, you get all these new people in your lives because of their friendships or because of their school or whatever. And so during um, carpool pickup, <laughs> I was standing outside and I was talking to a mother And she told me that, you know, she stopped working and was sort of looking for a new job because the kids were getting older. And I was like, oh, I didn't, you know, what did you do? And she's like, oh, I used to be a researcher for C-SPAN. And I was like, really? (laughs) I could use a researcher. So... I hired her, and you know she was sort of like, you know, I won't charge you a ton of money. I just really want to like do something, and I was like, well, okay, great. So, what I do is if I was having a hard time with finding something or I needed some specific material that I knew was actually going to take me probably more than an hour, I would send her the question in an email and I would say, you know, can you help me find this? And then I'd keep working on the actual story and just bracket that point and wait for her to kind of come up with something or not come up with something and if she came up with something that didn't quite work I you know I ask her another question or I do another bit of research and then ask her another question so I really believe she helped me take off at least a year from the writing of this book because to have a researcher an expert researcher is very different from sort of doing it yourself and trying to find it and um you know she gave me you know i asked her for like a binder of plants and animals for various regions and she like collected all this information. So then I just have my binder when I decided, you know, okay, I know that they're going to move here. And if I'm going to describe a tree, what kind of tree is it going to be? And I'd flip the page and see what she'd given me. So yeah, it was a great teamwork for me uh, working with her. And she doesn't like me to mention her name and give her much credit, but I, I have to mention it because, you know, it's an important part of this book for me.
0: That's amazing. And I think it's, I mean, I really like people to hear how, I don't want to say complicated, but that writing is work, right? You know, writing a novel isn't sitting at home and imagining things, right? (laughs) Like there's so much work to be done and it can actually be teamwork in some ways. I'm wondering what the, you know, after working with the people of the Crow tribe, if they read the book or even before that, how did they feel about you writing about their culture and their community? Have you had any feedback from them?
1: Yeah, I have. And I don't want to make it sound like the handful of people that I spoke to or represent the whole tribe and cuz there might be people who don't like the book. But Scott in particular, I mean, he's he read the portions that were set that were not set in Trinidad for me several times over and he was really he was very honored. Um and he said he was very honored and he felt like I gave him a gift of, you know, of not only writing about his people, but trying to do it in a way that brought honor and dignity to them. And I remember just sort of tearing up when I got his email, I sent it to my editor and I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Um, But it felt really good, it felt great. And um, I don't think what I did was perfect. I'm sure that there are imperfections in it. They're all mine for certain, but I really worked very hard at trying to put myself in the position of being people who were written about from someone on the outside And, you know, ultimately, this story is about a Black family. You know, Rosa interacts and she's part of this community. But, you know, the large part of the story is about people of, you know, from Trinidad and of Trinidadian descent. But to do anything, I mean, to have a book set during this time, in the places that I was setting the story in, and then not to include Native Americans would have been to me just unjust, you know, it would have been erasure. And I I wasn't willing to do that. So the only other choice I had was either not to write the book or to write it in the best, best way that I could.
0: And I think it really, I mean, like I said, I think this book is so powerful because of its whatever is the opposite of erasure you're sharing the story of people whose stories have not been told or worse have been erased. I think erased is worse. And that is what has happened, which brings me to my next question. You know, I couldn't help but feel this story resonates so much. I think that's what I said. I started out by saying I was gutted. I feel like it resonates so much with where we are as a country today, where black people and native people are still struggling to find A safe place to call home, right? We're trying to find out where we belong. And I feel like at the end of the day, that's what, like you said, it's a story about a Black family, but it's really about claiming your space. If you want it to, I mean, I know everybody takes something different away from a story, but what did you want people to take away from Book of the Little Axe?
1: I'll say that I agree with you, right? I mean, ultimately, it is about freedom seeking. And, you know, this woman, Rosa, she she takes her son from a community because she sees something happening to him that she recognizes as something that happened to her and sort of this sort of shaking of his identity and... It is resonant to today. I mean, it does, you know, a lot of it reminds me of what Black parents have to do very often. And that is to sort of pick up and recreate and try to find safe spaces for themselves and for their children, because you just want them to be able to live free. And Rosa's father does that for her. She tries to do that for her son. So I think that you said it perfectly. I mean, it really is just about this real idea of space, finding space and building community in whatever way, <laughs> whatever way that looks like. And sometimes it looks really odd in this story and claiming your history too. I mean, I think that the idea of, of sort of history you, right? And lifting you up um, to sort of be able to sort of battle the days, (laughs) the days war, right? And um, I don't know, I think that that's a huge part of why I decided to write this um, was this sort of telling of the history and and how it steals us and gives us uh, the strength to keep going.
0: Yeah, there was so much loss in this book. And yet, there's still a feeling of... um strength, right? There's this idea that, you know, even though there's so much loss, there is also so much strength and and not giving up and doing what you have to do to recreate and keep going. So, like, again, I I, I literally, I had to cry but I had to lay down and, like, really think and, yeah, I'm going to be thinking about this story for a long time. Before I let you go, though, I do want to just call out to this also, as a person who has spent 25 years writing about black hair. Mm. <laughs> I just love how you used hair as a kind of touchstone for this essentially mixed kid, Victor, who is, you know, the son of Rosa, who is a black woman and, you know, his native father. So he's he doesn't quite fit in. So there's this, you know, like you said, there's this definite identity crisis that happens both for Victor because he's mixed, but also Rosa earlier, you know, she doesn't quite fit. But their hair is all it both Rosa and Trinidad, because Rosa is darker and has kinkier hair than her mother and her sister. And then Victor has kinkier hair than the other boys in his tribe. I just wanted to know, like, did you really think that would have been a thing? Did you I mean, what was the thing about using hair to really kind of signify? But oh also the the fact that he loved to have his hair done by his mother, which was just this sweet thing that I don't care that it was, you know, late 18th century, early 19th century that we still talking about hair.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know as well as I do. Hair is so big for us. Um
0: <laughs> I just and, every time I was like, oh, look at that. It's there's still other it's the hair that defines them or it makes them different. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it is, you know, um, it is today. I believe it was all the time. It's the thing. Um, in some respects, it's our it can be our Achilles heel. People will use our hair against us. And people even within our own tribe, our own family, right, can use that. And I wanted to show the different shades of that, right? Rosa sort of getting the hair insults from her own mother, from her own family. But then her hair being something that her son and the men in her life seem to love you know the hair is the thing that Victor is that's used against Victor by someone in the tribe and it's the thing that really upsets i think his mother um and upsets him disturbs him so much and yet you know feeling his mother's hands in his hair makes him feel loved and so i i guess i was trying to show the whole scope of that and what that can look like, um, how the outside and the inside and the redemption of our bodies and our spirits with just the the same touch, the same love.
0: I love that. And again, as someone who, you know, deeply, deeply believes in the power of our hair, I love that that was, you know, a way to show that. And again, you know, on the page, I think it works very well because people can really understand what that would look like, right? I mean, they understand that African hair is going to look different than native hair, for example. So mm-hmm. I thought that was excellent. So before we let you go, are you working on anything new? That that novel you said you had to abandon when Book of the Little <laughs> Acts crept into your mind. Are you, did you go back to it? Are you going to, are you working on anything else? Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm actually back to that. It's not as, uh,
0: <laughs> it's not going as well
1: as I might want it to go. Um, it's been a long, I've been working on that book for a very, very long time. And um, I think since 2012, maybe, that I started with this book that I feel like is almost done, but just not quite where I want it to be. So, um, but I did sell it when I sold Book of the Little Axe. I sold this story as well. So it's due very soon. So we'll see. I, I, you know, I really hope that somebody likes it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I hope oh, I like it. I haven't. I haven't decided if I like it yet. That's the truth. I have not decided if I like it yet. But we'll see. We'll see. I'm. I'm.
0: I can almost guarantee that people are going to like it. I mean, unless you somehow became a completely different writer in the course of writing books one and two and then three, I'm sure everybody's going to love it. Does it have a title so people can keep their eyes out for it? Right now,
1: my editor loves the title that I gave her, which is uh, House of Twelve Fingers.
0: Which brings me to my next question, Lauren. Did you ever get to meet Stephen King and tell him what a great inspiration he was for you? No, that special day? <laughs> no I didn't. The House of Twelve Fingers sounds scary.
1: <laughs> it is actually supposed to be a little bit of a thriller. Uh, I'm not sure how thrilling it's going to be, but we'll see. But yeah, no, I never got to meet Stephen and I never I never bothered to send him an email. I'm sure he gets those all the time. So, you, And I, it's so easy for me to sort of dismiss that. But yeah, I, I never told him.
0: <laughs> I think we should... Um, let him know. Um, <laughs> I just think so. I feel like with COVID, everybody's sitting home anyway. So you might as well just reach out and touch somebody who otherwise you wouldn't because why not? And how are things going promoting the book with the virus with the pandemic? I know book promotions are obviously looking so different. How's that been for Book of the Little
1: Axe? <laughs> <laughs> um, painful. Frankly, yeah. Um, It looks really different from the first time the book came out on May 12th. So two months before a book comes out is usually the time when you get sort of reviews and buzz begins, or at least you're hoping buzz begins if the book is good. But everyone's attention was on what it needed to be on, which is sort of COVID and, and all the social justice issues that were coming up, you know, springing up all over the country. So, you know, it sort of missed the sweet spot. And, you know, every day is a sort of a battle, but I certainly appreciate doing podcasts like this and talking to readers who are excited about it. I mean, it just, it lifts me from, you know, from a little bit of, (laughs) a little bit of the blues about putting out a book during this time. Every time I talk to someone who's read it, it just, it really helps me.
0: Good. Well, like I said, I have our book club membership is 43 people. I don't know if all 43 of them are reading it right this very second, but we're all talking about it and so excited about this book. It gives us so much to talk about. And my actual last question, I think I've said that three times now, but my (laughs) actual last question is, what do you suggest for some food items for our book club discussion? Keeping in mind. We'll only be cooking for ourselves because we're all at home doing this over Zoom. Right. But we still want to come up with some, you know, like, what would you suggest? What would you suggest, A, that somebody might be able to make if they've never made Trinidadian or Crow-inspired foods? What would you say? I mean, and and it could be anything because—
1: you know, yeah, um, you know, what was interesting is that when I was out in Montana, my guides took me to get fried bread, I think they call it. In,
0: uh, yes, yes.
1: And when I had it, I was like, This is no different from fry baked, which is <laughs> what we had in the Caribbean. I was like, It's exactly the same thing. My, my mother was with me, and we we're eating this thing, and we we're just like. What's the difference here? And I realized that, like, that was huge, right? Um, so I would say, like, some kind of fry bread, fry bake. And, yeah, and I would say maybe some root vegetable, like... Um, and if you don't want to do fried bake, then you could just do like cassava fries or yucca fries, which, you know, sort of that root vegetable yucca cassava is is shared amongst these two communities. And, you know, there are a lot of like root drinks. Um, so in Trinidad, there's sorrel, S-O-R-E-L. And that could be, and you know, if you make it right, which is actually funny enough, I think I actually have the sorrel. On my Instagram page and making of it, actually, I actually show a video of me making the sorrel. But if it's done well and you put enough sugar in it, it's yummy with some ice and you can have your fry bake or your yucca fries, your cassava fries, and your
0: sorrel. I love it. That's what I'm making. I'm making it all. And I mean, I don't know if this just sounds tacky, but being from Wisconsin, in Wisconsin, in kindergarten, we learn how to make fry bread. Ah, That was one of our like... Yeah. Things that we learn how to do. We learn how to make dairy products and some Native American cuisine. So I love it. So that's what I'm making. I love that. That is so awesome. And I'm gonna, of course, share that with my book club members. And if we actually end up making it, which I'm definitely going to, but we'll take pictures and you know, post them in our on the My American Melting Pot Facebook page so people can see. Oh, I can And we can see how much you've inspired us all. That'd so, be great. Can you, Lauren, tell me and our listeners how they can follow you or find you on uh, social media? I'm on everything, right? I'm on
1: Facebook, uh, Lauren Francis Sharma. I'm on Instagram and Twitter as Lauren F. Sharma, F is in Francis Sharma. And I think I might be on Pinterest the same way, but I'm not active on Pinterest. So. <laughs>
0: I mean, is anybody really like we're all there because we're supposed to be? But
1: I I mean, I still can't. My kids are she. But one of my kids loves to cook from Pinterest recipes, so you know.
0: And I, I like one day, I swear I'm going to figure it out, but yeah, <laughs> good to know. So of course I'll have links to all of those places where people can find you. And thank you again so much, Lauren, for not only coming here today and speaking with us, but for writing this exquisite book that I swear I'm going to read it again because it was that good. And I feel like I could get a whole nother like meaning from it. And as soon as possible, I am booking a trip to Trinidad because I feel like <laughs> I need to go Plant my feet where Rosa and her family lived. Like, I, they're so real to me. So, Not thank you thank so you. much, Lauren. Thank
1: you. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed that Rewind interview with author Lauren Francis Sharma. I really hope you gained some inspiration and motivation for your own writing journey from all of the inspiring things that Lauren had to share. And just some updates, since we recorded that interview in 2020, Book of the Little Axe has been picking up accolades left and right. It was the Booklist Editor's Choice Book of the Year in 2021. It was a Hurston Wright Legacy Award Fiction nominee. And it was the 2020 American Library Association's Libraries Transform book pick. Book of the Little Axe was released in paperback in 2021. Keep in touch with Lauren Francis Sharma on her website at LaurenfrancesSharma.com. Of course, the link is in the show notes. The Read, Write, and Create podcast is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor is Brad Linder, and our theme music is by Wattaboy. Don't forget, you can find the full show notes for this episode, as well as a heap of useful and fun literary resources at the Read, Write, and Create website, and that's at readwriteandcreate.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you'll know when I drop the next bonus episode. Until then, keep writing.